0: Together we will be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So would you turn there in your Bible with me? Hi Judah, how you doing? And if you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find a blue one and we'll be on page 137 in those Bibles, page 137. If you're new with us, we are working our way through this Old Testament book, Called 1 Samuel. is written uh, covering events a little over 3,000 years ago, and yet the human heart and the God who inspired its writing remain the same. So I hope that you're encouraged to today as we work our way through another chapter. Just briefly, by way of a review, in order to set up what we'll be covering this morning, last Sunday uh, we studied the continuing collapse of King Saul. And in particular, his collapse in juxtaposition to the surprising rise of a young boy who was a shepherd. This shepherd was named David. David was uh, what we might call the runt of the family, and yet he was told that he would eventually ascend to the throne of Israel, replacing the first king, Saul, becoming a king who would rule after God's own heart. Throughout 1 Samuel, and indeed throughout the whole Bible, there's a thread that we can pull, and that's the theme that God often raises up the weak and brings down the proud. We've seen that so far through 1 Samuel with Hannah, and then Samuel, and now we will find it to be true also with David. David. There is, of course, in that theme, plenty for us to talk about. We could spend the whole morning just there. Friend, to the degree that you are aware of your neediness and your weakness, you will be finding the power of God in everyday life. And to the degree that you are arrogant and proud, you will find yourself relying on your own resources. But we need to continue on and look together at another chapter Our text this morning, as Todd rightly prayed, is a very famous one. It's probably unquestionably the most famous story in all of 1 Samuel, and probably in the top famous most stories in the entire Bible. Even outside the church, the story we'll look at today is often used as a metaphor for any circumstance in which some lesser faces a greater... In other words, when someone has an oppressor that he or she cannot possibly seem to beat, and yet they do. Chances are, even if you've never opened a Bible, you have heard something of the story of David and Goliath, and it is to their epic battle we now turn. Would you look with me starting in chapter 17? If you're new to the Scriptures, that's the big number. On page 137, the smaller numbers are the verses. I'll read 1 through 11. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were encamped at Succo, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succoth and Agag in epith And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle Against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came up from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his leg and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield armor went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Israel's demand for a king was driven by their desire to be like the other nations, specifically, to be like the other nations in the area of what we would call national security. You see, from the rising threats of the Philistines, the Israelites believed they needed a human king. A human king who would fight their battles for them. Because as they looked around at the nations surrounding them, that's what they had. And if you'll recall from earlier in the book, in a stunning neglect of the way in which God himself had cared for them, they demanded a king instead of God. And God, in his judgment upon them, gave them Saul. Saul was a man who looked kingly, a king like the nations, but a king without the character that the position required. But in 1 Samuel 17, years after Saul had ascended to the throne, the Philistines were still a problem. They haven't been taken care of. In fact, quite the opposite. Now a little detail that's easy to miss, unless you're up on your geography from 3,000 years ago, is that the city of Sukkot is not on the borders of Israel. No, it's way far into Israelite territory. In fact, it's down into Judah. So what's being told to us here is that no longer was Israel's arch enemy a nuisance on the margins. Now, they're a looming threat in the very heart of Israel. So to say that even more simply, the Philistines were clearly endangering Israel's sovereignty, if not their very survival. Saul had not been particularly helpful in this regard. In this particular instance, the Philistines tried to engage in what what we might call representative combat. What I mean by that is this wasn't a fight in which every Philistine soldier would run against every Israelite soldier and whoever killed the most would win. Now this was something very different. This was a battle in which One Philistine soldier represented all of them, and one Israelite soldier represented all of them. And that one's victory or that one's defeat would therefore be representative of the whole. Goliath is obviously the easy choice for the role of Philistine representative. If you look closely at verse 4, you'll see that before he's ever named, We're told that he is the champion. Can't you all hear them in the back? We are the champions. Now, interestingly, the Hebrew word for champion is only used in the entire Bible in this chapter. And it means something very specific. It means the man of the space between the armies the man of the space between the armies. So, as the two armies were encamped on opposite sides of a large valley, then Goliath would come down the hill each morning and he would stand and he would mock all Israel, all the soldiers who just stood there and looked at him. He stood alone as representative of the Philistines with no corresponding Israeli counterpart. Why? Well, as verse 11 put it, they were all dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, there's a considerable amount of intricate detail and theological significance in this lengthy chapter. It's the longest battle scene in all of 1 Samuel. There's simply no way we could get to every detail this morning. I hope if you haven't already that you'll take the time to read the whole chapter and to even make the effort to get together with another brother or sister and read it together that you might grow in Christ not only closer to the Lord but to each other as we live as a church family. For that is what we are. Now, To get a sense of the meaning of the whole chapter, we simply have to look at the comparisons the chapter makes. The first one, of course, is David and Goliath, chapters often known simply by those three words. But that's not the only comparison the chapter makes. There's also the comparison between Saul and Goliath and between Saul and David. In our remaining time together, that's all that I want to do with you is try to point out the highlights of the way in which this chapter compares these people. Think with me first about Goliath. As you read through the story, it's as though the narrator has been going rather quickly through until he reaches the spot in which Goliath. Goliath emerges, and then the camera stops panning and zooms in, and the action slows way down. It's almost as though the narrator pushes pause, and then he goes through and points out every bit of Goliath's appearance. Remember, as we learned in the last chapter, People look on outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Notice first, as we look at verse 4, his height. It's listed as six cubits and a span. The tallest man in modern history was a man named Robert Wadlow. Unfortunately, Robert died at the age of 22. But in his casket, he measured 8 feet 11 inches. Died in 1940. NBA finals are going on right now. Can you imagine if that guy had been playing? He would have dominated. But not even Robert was as big as Goliath. Goliath was 9 feet 9 inches. That is humongous. Now, it's very likely that Goliath was a descendant of a man named Anak, who was one of the Nephilim. Now, if you don't have any idea what that means, that's okay. Let me take two minutes and try to explain the backstory to you. When God rescued the Egyptian people out of Egypt, the Israelite people out of Egypt back in the end of Genesis and into the book of Exodus, the first and second books in the Bible. God told them, I'm going to lead you, the people of Israel, into the promised land, a land that was always symbolic of the eternal rest of salvation given to us in Christ. But he told them, I'm going to lead you into this land. And so the people of God came up to the border and 12 spies went and looked into the land, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Ten of these spies looked, and as the story goes, they looked and they saw people already living in the land, people who they termed giants, people who were huge. These were descendants of Anak, in which apparently there was a whole string of people that were super tall. Now, that shouldn't seem that odd to us today, because there are particular people groups around the world who tend to be taller or shorter than others. It's just these people were particularly tall. And so the Israelites, who on a whole averaged five feet, six inches, these ten looked in the land and said, we can't beat them. They will slaughter us. But two, two of the twelve, said, no, God can give us victory. So they all went back and they had a conversation and the 10 won. They said, God can't give us victory there. They're simply too big. We will all die. And as a result, they would spend an entire generation wandering around in the desert. A whole generation would die for the failure of those to place faith fully in God's ability to give victory. Now go back to David and Goliath and understand how the narrator has set before us what happened. A descendant of those same people is now standing mocking their lack of confidence in God. We are meant to see that Israel is failing yet again to trust God. They're doing exactly what their ancestors did. They're saying that one, those, are too big. Our God can't defeat him. And so the question, of course, we're meant to ask is, will the people of God go back into wandering in the desert decades? Is history going to repeat itself? Now, it's not just Goliath's height, though, that's terrifying. Now we're given a lot more detail. In fact, this is the most detail given in the Old Testament about a soldier's armory and weaponry. If you'll let your eyes glance again over verses 5, 6, and 7, you'll see that all three of those verses are about Goliath's external advantage. Remember again, we were just told people look at outward appearance. And that's all the Israelites seem to be able to do. His helmet, we're told, was not made of the typical leather, but made out of bronze, a thick, heavy metal. Like a snake's head frightens its prey. Goliath's head towered above everybody else, and he was ready to strike with deadly venom. But then, down from his head came his torso. His torso was covered with what's called a coat of mail. Now, this isn't the stuff you put in the mailbox with stamps on it, he's not covered with mail. In that sense, now this is what we would call scales. See, this male was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of metal scales tied together with leather to form a coat of bronze armor. And we're told so much detail that we even know how much it weighed. It weighed an impressive 126 pounds. Can you imagine being big enough and strong enough that you could hold a bronze helmet on your head and wear a coat weighing 126 pounds? Again, there's a clear illusion here. Goliath is covered with scales like a snake. Now, in addition to the helmet and the coat, his legs were coated with armor and his weaponry was without equal. To put it bluntly, to anyone looking, Goliath appeared to be invincible. We live in a day when people love to go watch superhero movies. Now, I'll save my opinion about that for some other day. But this is the quintessential, legitimate superhero. A man that appeared to be absolute in his strength. Man looks on outward appearance. And Goliath had the much smaller Israelite soldiers convinced of their total inability to fight him. Now down in verse 16, we read that for 40 days straight, this is what happened. Goliath got up. He and the Philistines shared their morning coffee and donut. And then he headed down the mountain into that valley where he stood in all of that impenetrable armor alone. And he mocked. Israel, and he mocked Israel's God, and the Israelites very likely in stunned silence simply sat there day after day after day after day. Verse 24 says, all the men of Israel... When they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Friend, you've probably heard this story. You probably know where this is going. But would you try for a moment to suspend your knowledge of the end and consider having been there? Being one of those little five foot six. Israeli soldiers considered hearing your God mocked again and again and again. And living over a month mortified. Goliath was huge. Just like Adam and Eve failed to trust God in the garden and fell to Satan's slithering, crafty tactics. Just like 10 of the 12 Israelite spies peered into the land, and their fear of the giants defeated them. It appears that Israel's headed for yet another tragic failure. Maybe the enemies of God win. Maybe we're on the wrong side maybe belief in a God we can't see is rather stupid. Maybe God doesn't intervene for his people. Those are the things Israel is feeling. But they had Saul. They had a king. This is what they wanted him for a king who would face the Philistines. And Saul had had some remarkable victories. And not only that, remember a little detail given to us all the way back in chapter 10. Let me read it. It says, Then they ran and took Saul from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than all the people from his shoulders upward. The Bible isn't fascinated with how tall people are. Friend, when the detail's given, it's, it's there for a reason. See, when, tall stu- when Saul stood among the Israelites, he was something of a giant. From his shoulders up, he was bigger than all his peers. Friend, he had a commanding physical presence. Saul was something of a giant. And so in a representative battle in which likely the biggest Philistine is standing there calling for one to come fight, who should have gone? The biggest Israelite, Saul. And not only that, A king is of course the ultimate representative of the people. If there was one who should stand in the space between if not by virtue of his size, by virtue of his position. He's the only one in that kind of authority and responsibility. And yet Saul, like every other soldier, cowered in fear. When you read the chapter later today, you'll see that the only leadership Saul could muster It's to gather his soldiers and promise riches and his daughter's hand in marriage and a life free of taxation for the family of whoever gave them victory. All he can do is bribe because he won't go himself. So as Goliath stands confident and as the Philistines sit confidently behind him, The Israelis on the battlefront were filled with fear and deflated of faith. The presence of great fear and the absence of confident faith remain ever-present problems. Friend, what are you afraid of? Sure, there's some of us that beat our chest and pretend there's none in there but fear is a universal problem. Whom do you fear? For some of us, our faith is so vulnerable that one disappointment, one tragedy, one hard phone call from a doctor, one harsh word from a coach or a boss or a girlfriend, can cause a crushing sense of defeat. When faith is weak, inevitably fear will fill those spaces, taking every nook and cranny of your soul. Fear is powerful. Fear will consume. And oddly enough, paradoxically, The only way to beat fear is with a greater fear. You see, the Israelites had lost their fear, their awe of God. And therefore, they feared Goliath. When it came down to it, Goliath would stand and fight for his gods, but no trained Israeli soldier would do the same for his gods. The tragic part about that is they should have known better. You see, way back in the book of Genesis, their ancestor, Abraham, God came to him in a a unilateral act of choice and grace and mercy. He said to him, Abram, I'm going to make a people through you, a people for myself, a people who will number the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And I will be for you. And let's know what he says in verse 12, verse 3 of chapter 12. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Every Jew knew that verse. And yet, as Goliath stood there and chronically dishonored them, none of them put God at his word. In the comparison between Goliath and Saul, Goliath has everything. Saul has nothing. Saul might have had the position of king, but he had lost his faith. His faith in God's ability to do what God wanted to do through him. He ruled alone, no longer with the enabling power of the Spirit. Saul, in his chapter, is a disgrace. And Goliath is gloating as the champion, seemingly stronger each day. The story doesn't only compare Saul... And Goliath. There's another guy, a guy named David. David comes to the battlefront because his father sends him with a meal. See, as these two armies were waiting to see who was going to fight who, this drug on and on and on and on and on. And they didn't get three squares a day from the government. So you had to be brought your meals. We know that David was but a boy still at this point because he wasn't a soldier. Numbers chapter 1 says that when you reached the age of 20, then you began serving in the military. So he's at least younger than that. Sometimes David was playing the lair for Saul. Sometimes he's back at home shepherding his father's sheep sometimes he's running supply line for his brothers, taking word back to dad. And on this particular day, as David neared the camp, he's got his shepherd's bag full of Chipotle and Jimmy John's, he comes up at the exact moment in which he hears David, David hears Goliath taunting his God. What? Saul and the Israelite soldiers heard to be the undefeatable demand of an unconquerable giant. This young lad, David, heard as the outlandish, outrageous, blasphemous words of one who would dare to mock his God. Same words, two completely different hearings. The Israelite soldiers looked on appearance, but David by God's grace, looked on the heart. David was stunned. Look at verse 27, the last sentence. David says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Apparently, David's words caused quite a stir. Likely, the Israelite camp was incredibly quiet. But David, with his little meals and his small body, had big words and a big question. The young shepherd's boy question resounded through the camp. You'll see in verses 28, 29, and 30 that his brother got angry with him. Who are you, you little pipsqueak, to come in here? And act like you know something and can do something. Families, it seems, have always been exactly the same. But the news eventually reached Saul. So Saul called David over. And essentially, Saul says, you're just a little guy. He probably patted him on the head. That's nice of you, but there's no way you can beat him. David's reply is worth hearing in full. Look at verse 34. David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of its mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David's logic is Incredibly simple. I've been a shepherd, I've been out alone at night, and I've been expected to protect my father's sheep. And in the course of my shepherding duties, because God has been with me, I have defeated a lion and a bear who tried to harm the flock. For David, it wasn't his youthful strength or agility or his superior mind. No, it was the presence of the all-powerful God with him. He says very clearly, God delivered him from the paw of the lion and God delivered him from the paw of the bear. And don't miss, don't miss what the narrator's saying. The paw of the lion went down. The paw of the bear went down and the hand of that animal, Philistine will go down too. As bears and lions who meddle with the father's sheep had to be dealt with, so did Goliath who was meddling with the father's flock of Israelites. For David, it was no more complicated than this. Goliath worshipped and served idols, gods made with hands who were not real. And he served the one true living God. Therefore, even if he is weak and frail compared to Goliath, God could give the victory. So Saul, in what is uh, rather stunning, Saul says yes to David. He gives him his armor and David tries it on. He can't wear it. It's too big for him. And so he goes out to fight the Philistine with nothing but a staff, a shepherd's bag, and his regular shepherding clothes. In what must have appeared to be certain defeat, David ran down the hill towards Goliath. Their exchange, of course, is the highlight of the story. Look at verse 43. The Philistine said, To David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Don't miss this. This is not a battle that's simply about the Russians fighting the United States. This isn't about land. It's a question of whose God is a real God. Verse 44, the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. How this ever became a children's story, I do not understand. Then David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Friend, David's all-consuming passion was that the whole world would know God as he is, and that Israel in particular would know that it's God who saves. This was not about him, and it was ultimately not about Goliath. It was about false. God's versus the one true living God. In all of David's physical weakness and vulnerability, in his pathetic lack of armor, David went after Goliath. Or or rather, the living God went after the false gods. Now David, as you know, took some stones from the bottom Of that valley. He put one of them in a sling. He swung it around and around and around, and he hurled it with supernatural force to the one spot where Goliath was weak. That one stone was enough to knock Goliath to his back. Then David went and took that sword and cut off his head. Those powerful, angry, mocking lips of Goliath would never defy God again. Why? Because victory belongs to God. And God delights to win amidst the weakness of his followers. Friend, if you are trying to live your Christian life and you feel weak, then you are in the very best of company. Unlike Adam against the snake in the Garden of Eden and unlike Israel against the giants in the land and unlike Saul who had failed at nearly every turn, David believed God. David trusted God. David relied on a God who cares about his reputation. God's reputation. God's power is so awesome and grand that even a boy powerless in himself can be filled with the Spirit's power from heaven and thereby conquer God's enemies. And I want to say this very clearly. Friend, this story is not meant to say you can go out tomorrow and slay the giants of a full schedule. You can go out the giants and slay the giants of uh, taking on a new diet. You can go out and slay the giants of getting into that school you want to get into. Friend, that that is a a mockery and a ridiculous demotion of the meaning and power of this text. Friend, this story is not about human courage and effort. It's not about the will of the little over against the great enemies of the strong. This is a story about the awesome power of God to be displayed in the middle of the weakest as their hearts are grounded and focused on Him. It's about God defending His own honor. It's about the people of God knowing who God is. That's what drove David. Is that what drives you? Now as we lift up our eyes from 1 Samuel 17, and we consider the whole span Of the biblical story, then of course there's another comparison that we're intended to see. There's a much more terrible enemy to God's people than Goliath. Goliath, after all, is just a man. Yes, he was big, but he could have his head chopped off and did. This greater enemy, of course, is Satan or the devil. Satan is the force behind all evil. He's the father of lies. He's the prince of the power of the air. His intent is to steal, kill, and destroy. And it may be unfashionable to talk about him today, but we Christians believe there really is a supernatural being bigger and stronger than us in and of ourselves who is wreaking havoc all over the world. His aim, always and forever, is to steal, kill, and destroy. But one came, a descendant of David, whose faith is even stronger and surer than David's. And this one's track record is better than David's. David was good but this one was great. In fact, he has a perfect track record of obedience and confidence in God. And he faced that giant. And it was in his own death and resurrection that Jesus conquered not merely a physical giant, but Satan himself and death itself. Jesus is the real champion who stands in the space between. As he bared the taunts and the insults, he won the battle for our souls, securing the ultimate victory for God's people. Amen? Christian, do you see what that means? Jesus fought a representative battle. And he won. And therefore, his victory is disseminated, dispensed to all of his people that you might share in it as your own. Christian, you need not fear him who can harm the body because he cannot touch your soul. You need not fear even death itself for it has been beaten. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, Friend, do you see the offer of the gospel? The offer of the gospel isn't merely some small trifling thing like worldly wealth. The offer of the gospel is the eternal victory of Jesus being given to you by which your animosity between you and God can be resolved. God's wrath toward you can be averted. And your great enemy, Satan, And no longer ever harm your soul again. Friend, all you need to do is turn from yourself, your sin, to Jesus. Asking his victory to be yours. Giving yourself fully and wholly to him. If you're ready, you can do that now. There are no magic words for it. You simply go to God and ask that God would take your sin and exchange it. Jesus. And church, I think we must ask from this chapter, do we share a concern for the glory of God in any way commensurate to David's? See, as David came up on that battle line, he wasn't concerned for the expansion of his own state government. He was concerned that the glory of God be seen. Brother or sister, are you offended and taken back when God is said to be nothing and even worse when he is cursed? We of course don't Respond to that by chopping off heads. We respond like Jesus, loving our enemies. May we do so this week. Father, thank you for this chapter. I pray that it would be heard with fresh ears. Pray that you would deliver us from fear, that you would re engage our minds and hearts with what has become familiar. That you would save lost people this week. I pray that for now. Pray that for all the kids that'll fill this building all week for VBS. We pray that, God, we would live from faith, not from fear. We pray that we would appropriate Jesus' victory as our own. We pray that we would love our enemies as ourselves. In Jesus' name.